0: Let me just say as we begin today, grief is real. I've stood in this very cemetery and other ones like it with many of you as we've buried our loved ones in the ground. Grief is real. But it is good for us, I would say, to grieve. Grief is okay. Grief is frankly good for us. The Bible teaches this. Mary wept at the death of her brother Lazarus. Jairus wept at the death of his daughter. David wept at the death of his best friend, Jonathan, and Jonathan's father, Saul. Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend, Lazarus. And I believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she stood at a distance, wept as her son hung his head and breathed his last. And yet every single one of these people believed in God and believed that God was powerful over death and yet they still wept and grieved. Why? Because we know that death is not natural. We don't like death. God didn't create us to die. And yet we still wonder what happens to Christians after they die? This is the eighth and final question in our hard questions for Jesus sermon series. And out of all the questions that I received, this one and variations of it was the most asked question above all else. I pray that today we resolve this question with a biblical and faithful answer in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Sunday, we talked about the reality of hell. I reminded you that hell exists, but I also proclaim to you that hell has no power over you who are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is your answer. Jesus is the solution to your problem of sin, suffering, and death. When we believe in Jesus Christ, it means we are alive in Jesus Christ. And if we are alive in Jesus Christ, where is Jesus? Not in hell. Jesus is in heaven. And so too we have life with Jesus in heaven. But where is heaven? What is heaven? How do people get to heaven? We have a lot of questions like this about what heaven is and where it is and how people get there or, or what happens after we die. Many people are incredibly curious about this part of life, what happens after we die. So much so that if you do a quick Google search on what happens to people after they die, you will have all kinds of results. But some of the most popular clicked links are those dealing with people's so-called near-death experiences and the articles and the videos and the books they've written and published about their so-called experiences. Those reports and those experiences of people that they give to us can often be very persuasive and convincing for many people. And for many, inside the church and even outside the church, often those reports feel more convincing, frankly, than even the Bible itself for a lot of people, especially if those reports sound good. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that these people had experiences and they want to tell us about them. However, we need to be very careful to check and validate those people's stories and every person's story. And validate them according to what the Bible says. Because if any story contrasts the hope that we have according to the biblical story, then we might need to admit that that story isn't all that valid. See, if those things contrast the Bible, we have to admit while that person may have had an experience, it it probably is not an experience that we should place our hope in. Remember, our hope is in Jesus Our hope is in Jesus. Let me say that again. Our hope is in Jesus. This is what the Bible says. The Bible is the story of God's plan of salvation from creation to new creation, all centralized in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his fulfillment through his death and his resurrection. So if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. If you have questions Your answers can be found in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And there's peace and hope there. Look to Jesus. But let's wrestle through some of this today. Why are there so many questions about heaven and what happens to Christian people after they die? Plain and simple, I think there are so many questions because the Bible isn't all that clear in how it talks about death. I mean, the Bible does talk about death, but not necessarily in the way that we oftentimes talk about death. See, when we talk about death, most often what we want to know, what our wonderings are, what we're trying to figure out, especially when we're grieving the death of our loved ones, we often want to know what it's like for them right now. As if they are living some sort of parallel experience to us as we go through life. You know, we want to know what they're doing. We want to know that they're enjoying themselves. We want to know that they're actually happy and that they are in this place that's been promised to us. We want to know that everything's okay. But what really happens when we die, according to the Bible? Well, let's start at the very beginning because we need to see where it is that death came from in the first place. See, we learn early on in the scriptures that death is the final result of sin. Genesis chapter 3 says, from dust you are to dust you shall return. This was the final word God gave to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. We also read in the epistle lesson today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when Jesus came, Jesus came as the solution to our greatest problem. And what is our greatest problem? Sin. What is the result of sin? Death. So when Jesus came into this world and he died and rose again, he came to forgive our sins, yes, but also to deal with the final problem of our sin, which is death. That's why Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the solution, not only for our sin, but also for our death. Jesus died, and Jesus rose. The Apostle Paul also speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says this, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean? Well, the idea of first fruits is a biblical idea and it means literally like what it sounds. First fruits. So if you're growing fruit, the first fruits are the ones that grow first. And in the Bible, this uh, first fruits idea is often used to talk about the way that we should give our offerings to God. Right? So if you're growing fruit Uh, you should bring the first fruit to God. You give your first fruits because you trust that God is the one who provides everything. So if he's provided this first fruit to you, you trust that if you give it to him, he will provide much more just the same. And so often we talk this way about financial giving as well, right? We give our offerings first, or we should, before taking care of ourselves because we trust that just as God gave us that first uh, amount of money, that he'll give us what we need. We don't wait until that last soggy, cracked tomato is hanging on the vine after it's gone through a couple of frost cycles and then we take it and pick it and bring it to God and say, hey God, I brought you the best. No, you take that very first one that ripens, that's crisp and juicy and you would love to have and you bring it to God. So we do uh, with, with, our, with our offerings as well. So we do with the first dollars that are earned. We trust it when we turn it to God. We say, here, we, here you go, God. Here you go. I trust that just as you gave me the first one, you'll give me much more. So when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, well, what does it mean? Why is he talking about Sleep. Sleep is the picture that the New Testament gives and the the picture that it uses to describe the death of faithful people. You could do a quick search through your Bible uh, about how the word sleep is used and see the many instances where it's used to talk about death. Now why is the word sleep used to talk about the death of faithful people? Because what happens when you go to sleep? What's your hope when you go to sleep? What, what do you trust is going to happen? That you're going to wake up. And whatever it was that was making you tired last night, whatever maybe was causing you anxiety or stress, hopefully when you wake up to a new day, you have a new perspective and outlook on life now that you are rested. The clearest example in the Bible, even though there are many, of, uh, of the Bible's usage of this word sleep to talk about death is Jesus' very own words when he's dealing with his friend Lazarus. Let me show you this. It says, uh, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that now you may believe. But let's go to him. So, you know, Jesus says he's asleep. And they go, if he's sleeping, what's the problem? He's going to wake up. And Jesus says, "Ah, he's dead. He's dead, but let's go back and I'm going to raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what happens in in, in John chapter 11. So back to the, the idea now. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus on the cross died. He fell asleep. He had a three day rest in the tomb. And when he woke, he arose. He rose from the dead. So he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what does this mean? We trust that just as God gave Jesus Christ to be the first fruits of the resurrection, so too will there be much more just the same this means that all who die in faith in Jesus Christ will be raised with Jesus Christ on the last day on the last day see this is where the bible spends most of its time talking the bible really doesn't spend a lot of time it's not so concerned about what happens immediately at the point of death And that's probably why there are so many questions and wonderings and ideas about what happens immediately when people die. Because the Bible just isn't so concerned about it. The Bible isn't really concerned about what happens at the point of death. What the Bible is concerned about is what happens on the last day. The last day, the day of the Lord, the judgment day. The Bible's got all kinds of uh, descriptions of this day But it is one day, one final day, the last day. And what will happen on the last day? Jesus Christ will return and when he returns, the Bible says that he will raise the dead. And those who believe in him will be raised to eternal life. And those who did not believe in him will be raised to eternal punishment. See, on that day when Christ returns, the heavens and the earth as we know them, they too will pass away and God will create a new heavens and a new earth and we will live in bodies glorified, made new, whole, perfect bodies, yet bodies all the same Just as Jesus rose in his body, so too will we and we will be reunited with our loved ones and we will be with our creator for all of eternity. And the Bible uses a lot of descriptive language to describe what this eternity looks like. And some of our pictures when we say heaven are these pictures. But these pictures of what our eternity will look like they sound kind of similar to creation. The Bible uses a lot of creation language. Trees and water, right? stars and moon, bodies, animals. But all of these things will be purified and glorified and made whole and new and perfect. What's my point in all of this? My point is the Bible's point. The Bible's point in the story, and dealing with death is as if to say, don't worry about it. Don't get too hung up on it. Treat it for what it is. Be sad about it. Acknowledge that it's not natural, that you don't like it. Be frustrated about it. Grieve. And yet, At the same time, confess that Jesus Christ, who began a good work, will bring it to completion on the day that he returns. And this last enemy of death that needs to be destroyed will be destroyed once and for all. But some wonder what happens when I die? Okay, maybe I understand this idea of the resurrection, but what happens when I die? I kind of want to know. Do I sleep then for hundreds of years or thousands of years? Do I just sit around and twiddle my thumbs? That sounds really boring. Or am I immediately transported to the resurrection or, or, or to heaven? Or, or what, what is it? The Bible is quite clear that those who die in Christ are immediately with Christ. At peace and at rest with him, it seems to be the Bible describes The most clear example of this immediacy is when Jesus speaks to the thief on the cross and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Like, not a lot of waiting around. Death is seen as rest. It is is seen as sleep. But just just think about this for a minute. God is outside of time. Everything that we do here in this earth is bound by time. The, The setting of the sun, uh, and, and, and the, the stars and the sky. Some of you are checking your watches to see how long I'm, I'm preaching. I'm almost, I'm almost done. But everything that we do is according to time. When we die, we're in the presence of God. We can imagine that we are outside of time. And so I'm speculating here, which is a little bit dangerous, but I'm not going to push it too far. I'm just speculating, but imagine that if we're outside of time, you know, if we have this concept of, of death as sleep, you know, when you close your eyes and you go to sleep and you wake up, you know, unless you look at the clock, you're not necessarily sure how long you've been asleep. It might have been five hours, it might have been nine. You know, you might feel more tired or less tired uh, for either one of those things, right? But you don't necessarily know unless you look at the clock. Maybe it feels like that. And, and then we wake up. We wake up. And, and then we realize you know, we didn't need to worry about this thing called death. And that's what the Bible is emphasizing. Don't worry. When you are in Christ, you're already a new creation. The old is already gone, the new has already come. You are already with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm with you always, right now, in this life, with you at the point of death, with you in all of eternity. I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Don't worry. In the gospel lesson today, the Sadducees, they were a Jewish sect that didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they came to Jesus with a logical conclusion that they were going to convince him that there was no resurrection from the dead. You can read about it more in the gospel lesson, what they tried to do. But when they came to him with their logical reasoning and saying there's no resurrection from the dead, Jesus had a clear and convincing proof to them that there was, and they all left being quite amazed. In the epistle lesson today from 1 Corinthians 15, you know, I've quoted this a lot today. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 15, go home and read it, especially if you're wrestling through this whole death and resurrection thing. That's what that chapter is all about. It's a bit confusing. So after you read it once, read it again, and then probably read it again. And then if you're still not getting it, ask for some help. Okay, but it's very good stuff. But here's the deal. The Corinthian church, um, and, and maybe, maybe the people of Corinth, they were challenging Paul on the reality of a resurrection from the dead. And they thought they had logical arguments to say, Paul, that's so foolish, that doesn't make any sense. And so they came to questions with Paul, such as this. Hey, Paul, if everybody's going to rise from the dead at one time, where are they all going to fit? The earth isn't big enough. We don't have enough room in our houses. We're going to have a plumbing issue, Paul, if that's the case. <laughs> all the cows, how are we going to have enough hamburger? We don't have enough cows. Everybody's going to starve. And then what are they going to do? they Are going to die again? Come on, Paul. They didn't have those exact questions for Paul. But I've heard those questions come from people in challenging the resurrection from the dead. But the Apostle Paul is very clear. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. But if he rose from the dead, it changes everything All those questions that we have, they're oftentimes mere distractions from the beautiful future that God has prepared for all of us for all of eternity. Life in the new heavens and the new earth will be better than the best thing that we can imagine. And the Bible is clear. There will be reunited relationships. There will be life. There will be bodies. There will be stuff to do. You won't be bored. The Bible never says you're going to float around on a cloud playing a harp for the rest of your life. So don't worry about taking harp lessons, okay? That's likely not part of the deal. See, all the things in this life that we fear, they will be gone. All the things that cause hate and division will be no more. All the struggles and stresses and sin and suffering of this life will be no more and death itself will be put. To rest. But my friends in Christ, all those things that we hope for in the future, yes, they will come true, but they're not just for the future. Here's what a resurrection hope actually does. It affects our present day reality. This is the story of the Bible, what Jesus came to do. He came to invade the earth, to bring heaven to the earth. Jesus teaches us then to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? That we who have hope in heaven should have lives here on this earth living in that hope. This is why we care for the poor and the widows. This is why we take care of the creation. This is why we fight for life. This is why we strive for peace because when we do, heaven invades the earth. It's what we've been called to do. The Bible is clear. Jesus does not just want us sitting in a corner, twiddling our thumbs, saying, I'm so glad I'm saved. I can't wait for you to come back, Jesus. No, the Bible is quite clear that when the master leaves the house, we should attend to the master's business. So that when he returns, he sees us being about his work. It's what he's called us to do. What a great and glorious thing it is. You know, I pray that you had fun and that you learned a lot and that you were incredibly encouraged in this sermon series, Hard Questions for Jesus. I thank you for your participation. It was great for me to get an understanding of the things you're all wrestling with. You know, we abbreviated this sermon series as HQ, and that was intentional. You know, it stood for hard questions, but a lot of times if you just see HQ, you think of headquarters. And so my reminder to you, as it has been each week, when you have a hard question, go to your headquarters. That is Jesus. And I believe that at the at the cross and, and in the empty tomb, you will find resolutions that will give you hope and peace and joy. So I pray that whatever you're wrestling through, go to Jesus. And as you make the name of Jesus boldly known in this world, we can and should be praying the prayer of the church, which is those last words of your Bible, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Each time we wrap up one of these sermons series, it sort of feels like drawing to a close. But in reality, we're just getting started. Next week, we're actually beginning a new year. A new year, you say? And I say, yes. In the church calendar, the new year begins with Advent. And so Advent starts next Sunday. And, and during the Sundays and Wednesdays of Advent, we're going to be focusing on these themes. Hope, peace, joy, and love. I pray that you join us for Sundays and Wednesdays. There's more info in your bulletin about that. But don't forget also this Wednesday, we've got a Thanksgiving Eve service at 7 p.m. As long as my plane uh, brings me back home, I'll be back home with you. I'll see you there. God's grace and peace go with you in his name. Amen.